Hey, Jim. Stephen York. Stephen York. Okay, Brother York. All right, guys, we're going to talk about what biblical preaching is. Now, there's some meaty stuff. I don't want to low rate what we're talking about now. But what we're going to talk about tomorrow is more technical. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like the more technical is what we pastors sometimes need the most. Because, yeah, we're all together in theory, but the theory doesn't get the best technical treatment, right? But if you, it's sort of like if you don't have a good bedside manner and you can't keep a job because you're so horrible of a human being, what difference does it make how good a surgeon you are? So you got to kind of get the two together. And so today, just trying to lay some groundwork, get our philosophy of preaching in line, and um, try to you know challenge you. You know you don't have to you don't have to agree with me on anything to be a great preacher. So I'm not saying that. I just want to challenge. By the way, you, you can, if you have any questions you want to ask me, if you want to, I don't even care if you push back on something. I mean, I'm not here to, you know, you understand. We're all grown men, and if I can help in any way or point you to something to read, or whatever, okay? I'll be glad to do it. All right, so let's talk about what preaching is. Preaching is the word preaching. Let's go to Nehemiah 6. Let's just pretend we don't know this word at all. We're going to try to get some, build a biblical philosophy of what it means to preach. All right. Fundamentalists obsess. They love fiery, open-ended, potentially legalistic quotes. You know what I mean? You can just use it as a bludgeon. You know, who preaches dying man, dying man, the dying man. Okay, that's good. I don't know what that means. I need a better definition. Sounds great in sermon, but no idea what it means, right? Or you got the Leonard Ravenhill, Ian Bound stuff about revival and prayer. You read a little bit of that, you might as well shoot yourself. You'll never live up to any of that. No one ever has, not even them. Right? And a lot of these men are like that. You got you got uh, Arthur Pink, who I love. Pink is a radical Calvinist, but there's nobody better than Pink in some areas. I mean, he's just fantastic. And he died bitter and angry, little bitty church in England, I think, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> And I'm not reveling in that. I'm just saying, and there are details in that struggle I don't know about. I'm saying you would think that you have it all together. And you read him and you'll think, man, I've got to get deeper. I've got, I'm missing some key thing. Probably not. He was just really good at communicating truth through, through his pen. You know what I'm saying? Ravenhill, just really passionate about inspiring people to care about spiritual things. But you can sometimes just beat yourself into a guilt-ridden, you know what I mean? You're like a ecclesiastical version of the Grinch. You know, you just, you're just self-loathing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I don't think you, I don't think it makes you spiritual to be miserable. I don't think it makes you humble to hate yourself. That's not what humility is, right? And uh, so I just want to encourage you about those things. We do need to be serious men doing serious work. But that doesn't mean that we have to be horrible. You heard about the, the drunk that was going door to door collecting bottles so he could, you know, turn the bottles in and get the money for them. And knocked on this woman's door and said, "Ma'am, do you have any beer bottles that I could take off your hands?" She said, "Beer bottles? I'll have you know I'm a Christian." 
He said, okay, fine. You got any pickle jars? <laughs> anyway. All right. Pickles are sour. Get it? All right. That was a bridge too far for you? Okay. <laughs> All right. It's going to be a long couple of days then. If that one was too much. I got it. You got it? Let me, tell you. Let me tell you my favorite joke. You ready? What does my mother-in-law and a slinky have in common? They both bring a smile to your face when you push them down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to cut that too? No. <laughs> Leave that one on there. There's a reason why there's no women here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's another thing, guys. Y'all don't need to take. Y'all can take this advice or leave it. But as long as you put up with women being hypersensitive and not taking jokes, they'll be hypersensitive and not take jokes. <laughs> That's kind of up to you, whichever route you want to take with that. Roll tide. <laughs> All right. Back to it. I knew that would be too far for you. All right. Nehemiah six seven. I'm not advocating domestic violence. I'm just saying if they don't like the joke, tell six more just like it. We have a similar philosophy in my house. <laughs> I preached in a church recently, and uh, I'll just tell you the story, okay? My wife got saved. Um, my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, the one that slinky, anyway. <laughs> she got saved in 1955. And Pete Ruckman went to their town in Michigan, Holland, Michigan, and preached a revival meeting mm-hmm. way back. All right? And amazing story and amazing conversion. Made great contribution. That moment made a great contribution to my life and having a, a wonderful <laughs> wife and all that. And so I, pr- I preached with this guy recently. This guy's my friend, by the way. So I, I'm not saying anything negative about him. I'm just telling you what happened. So I, I get there, I arrive, getting ready to get myself together, find out what he needs for that night, and be ready to preach. And I just mentioned something in passing and mentioned the name Ruckman. He said, now look, you don't want to mention him here. This is not the crowd. This would not go over well, meaning he's got a bunch of guest speakers there, a bunch of his buddies there that hate Pete Ruckman, and that's not going to go well. And it was one of those moments for me where it's like time just stopped. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, thank you. Which road do I take? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Do I take this road or I quote Ro- Ruckman 87 times in one sermon? Because <laughs> I mean, you don't have to like Ruckman. I'm not a Ruckmanite type, you know what I mean? But I mean, like I said earlier, got a ton from me, right? My mother-in-law got saved under his preaching. He's not as bad as some people think he is. was. He's not as good as some people thought he was. He was a man, right? Or I could take this right over here, the older, wiser version of myself. He says, all right, buddy. He had no idea my wife, mother got saved under preach. I couldn't go the offended route. Well, my mother-in-law, you see what I mean? I could have gotten off, you know, she got saved under his preaching. But I know why people hate Pete Ruckman. I mean, I know. I'm not stupid. So I just let it slide. You know, I preached for a guy up here in Maine. He said, you know, people up here are not as sarcastic and he had heard something as I did somewhere else. And he said, now look, I, I don't think our women would think the mother-in-law jokes are funny. Time just stopped right there. And I thought, I need to get some extra mother-in-law jokes. You know what I'm thinking? I'm going to tell 87 of them. Well, all right. 
How many of y'all face those temptations all the time, right, preaching? Where you, am I going to put myself in the middle of this mess and cause a problem? Start fires I got to go put out? And, and see, my problem is. Well, yes. My problem is once I start trouble, I'm going to double down. You follow me? I'm not flinching then. Because if then a woman says something to me about it, I'm going to hit her. I don't mean physically. I mean, I'm going to respond to her. And if her husband doesn't like it, I'm going to say, why are you letting your wife run a reaper to me anyway? You see how ugly it's going to get? It's going to get way uglier than I want it to get fast. So discretion is the better part of valor, right? So I kind of log it back. Okay, it's like time kicks in again. Oh, yeah, I don't have to mention Ruckman. I won't tell him about all jokes. I'm going to mark you down, though, in my little book. Is this guy is a woman trapped in a man's body. All right, let's go on. All right, here we go. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly right. Matter of fact, I have a quote here. I'll share with you guys. And you're going to think I'm promoting Pete Ruckman, and I'm not. But I'm going to share this quote with you. Where's it at? Ready for this? Come on, Pastor. Oh, yeah. It's a quote of Pete Ruckman. About seven out of ten men in the world are women. <laughs> I got another where he says, most preaching on the family amounts to telling a man to do what her wife what his wife tells him to do. True. Also true. Alright, off we go. What is preaching? Nehemiah 6 7. Suppose we don't know anything about what it is. Verse uh, 7. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem. Now these are not faithful prophets, right? See? But that has anything to do with it. We're talking about the basic definition of the word preach. Saying, now let's back up. Thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem. Say, got it? So our first observation, very surface observation, is that preaching involves things said. That, that it involves speaking. The Bible is a book that is trans. Our King James Bible is translated in order to be heard in the churches. The Bible says, "Give attendance to reading." What does that mean? That means everybody didn't have a Bible then, so they came and they listened to the Bible being read. Faith cometh by. Yes, there's something about preaching that God uses. God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So preaching involves things said. All right, the second time we find it in the Bible is Isaiah 61. So literally the second time, and you know this verse very well. It's one of those verses that deals with a coming kingdom that nobody ever talks about because they want to spiritualize it and talk about what they want to talk about. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach. So the first observation we make is that preaching involves things said. The second observation we make is that uh, preaching requires the help of God. God has anointed him to preach. Now, I don't want to make turn. This is not a theological workshop. I don't want to cause any theological problems. And I'm not so uptight that I can't deal with a loosening of the language on occasion, right? It's still chafing at times, but I hear all the time, 
Let's pray that God would anoint this and anoint that and anoint this and anoint that. Lord, anoint me. Lord, anoint this. Anoint this. Anoint the Crimson Tide. Lord, please anoint this quarterback that he doesn't throw the ball to the other team again. You know what I mean? Anoint everything. The Bible says in 1 John 2 that we are anointed. You understand that, right? Believers are anointed. That means that we have the endowment of the Holy Spirit living within us. And it says that we need not that any man teach us. The Holy Spirit, the God in all truth, the Spirit of truth, lives in the believer. Every believer is anointed. So when we look at that, we understand we should be ready to preach as saved, born-again people. Because we know preaching involves things said. We know we have the Holy Spirit living within us to assist us in the study, the learning, the development of ideas, and the ability to communicate them to people. All right, so the third time we see the word in the Bible is in Jonah 3, 2, which says, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. The preaching that I bid thee. So, all right, watch this. Preaching involves things said. Preaching requires the help of God. And preaching must have as its content the specific message that has been revealed from God. Get that? I'm not making anything up right there. God sent Jonah with a very specific message to preach, and he was to preach none other message but that one. Watch this. That's where the anointing happens. That's where the Spirit of God works. It's when we do what he's told us to do. We preach his message, his way, in the context in which he gave it. That's where the Spirit works. Now that's... that's the building blocks of this work of preaching. Let's look at another passage that would help us. Go to Philippians chapter 1. All right, look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident in my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of good will. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing that affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, and yea, yea, and will rejoice. So at least three times he refers to preaching here in this passage. And tucked away in there is an amazing little definition of what it means to preach. You ready? Let's read it again, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word. That's what we do when we preach. All right? It's speaking the word. Webster's 1828 dictionary defines preaching as to declare, to utter, open. So once we add the adjective biblical, then we understand that our objective when entering the pulpit is speaking, declaring, uttering the word of God as he intended. 
right? As once delivered unto the saints. That which was delivered unto me, right? Paul said, and Jude said, contend for the faith, uh, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. Is that where that's found? Yeah. So the idea is what we are given is what we're supposed to distribute. We are not manufacturers. We're distributors. And that, that guys, please hear that. That's where we're blowing, all right? If you find yourself on Saturday trying to manufacture a great sermon, you've missed the narrative, right? Or how does the, the saying go? You've missed the plot. You've lost the plot, right? We're not trying to find a sermon. We have the Bible. So the labor is preparing this passage of Scripture to be preached. So I don't, I'm not feeling it. It doesn't matter one bit if you're feeling it. And that's part of some other conversation later. But let's suppose you're still in that mode where you're deciding week to week to week to week to week to week what you're going to preach. So wait a minute. This is what a lot of guys, particularly in the South, push back right here. So, what about, you don't believe God gives you a message? Uh, yes, Jimbo, I believe he gave me a message when he gave me 66 books and said, preach the word. That's my message right there. Waiting for some breeze of emotional, internal impression to blow through my world in order to be confident is completely wrong. It's mysticism. It's not just another way to do it. It is an incorrect approach. It's not faith-based. It's whimsical. It's carnal. It's, it's mysticism is the old Kierkegaardian approach to the leap of faith and the look within for truth. And that has worked its way into Christian thinking. Well, I'll tell you what, I felt something right there, amen. I felt something. I'm going to stop right there a while. Even though there's no Bible to go with it, the preacher felt good about his backward redneck tirade, right? It's not biblical what he's saying, but he felt something right there. So I'm supposed to believe that the authority of God has given us some special message for the moment. No, it hasn't. And the reason we take that, there's two reasons we accept that garbage. One is because it's coming across real slick and nice and believable like the Charismatics and the Southern Gospel diesel sniffers and all that stuff. And I like Southern Gospel music. I don't care about that. I care about the fact that there's an emotional component that establishes the faith in the, in the realm of emotion. And so one is because it's slick and it's entertaining and it's nice and it's appealing. And so when God must be in this, I know what I felt. And preachers are sucked into that. The other side is it turns into a bully pulpit. You got some kind of hellfire and brimstone console strip and street screeching. Amen. And he's going to bully you through his sermon. You don't like what he's saying. You don't believe it because it's not in the Bible, so he's going to bully you. Not me. I'm all stocked up on getting bullied from the pulpit. Y'all understand? Right up here. Had it right up there. Not going to put up with it. Now, I got that off my chest. No. Now, I. <laughs> I I, I'm okay. I do understand that the preacher, the theoretical preacher that I'm talking about that is bullying people from the pulpit, I think he means well. And I think many times he's just doing what we've all learned incorrectly 
but he's a, he's a tough guy, so it comes across like a bully. Follow what I'm saying? That's just the way it is. Some coaches scream and yell, throw headsets. Some are players' coaches, you know, they're rapping on the sidelines. I mean, everybody's got a different personality. Some preachers are more like a salesman. Some preachers are more like that, that you know, the, the sky is falling. So I'm, okay, I'm fine with the multiplicity of personality finding its way into preaching. As a matter of fact, that's what preaching is. It is the merger of truth and personality. Otherwise, it's not preaching. That's Phillips Brooks' line, that preaching is the, is the mingling, the merger of truth and personality. If there were no personality to be involved in preaching, he'd just write it on a chalkboard or send it out in an email. But God uses the speaking and hearing of words and the passionate delivery and the move of God in the moment. What I'm challenging here, and I'm not saying that preaching shouldn't be passionate and that we should never feel it, that we should never be moved by it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's not our authority. And that's not what decides what is right or wrong. And we shouldn't wait until we feel awesome about our passage. We should get to work on that passage, start before Saturday, and then you'll be amazed. <laughs> you'll be amazed at how sweat equity will develop confidence, right, in what you're going to deliver on Sunday. And some of your hardest wrought sermons will be your best. Some of those that said, well, I'll tell you what, that right there, that'll preach. Right? That right there will preach. That it falls flat eight out of ten times. <laughs> right? Because some of those great sermons you've heard that I've heard, this sermon, I'm not saying the sermon wasn't good, but a lot of times it's the moment, and it's the crowd, and it's a lot of different factors contributing that just made it go well. I could say these same things that I'm saying to you. You think they're funny because you kind of agree. You're coming from the same viewpoint that preaching is falling on hard times. But there's some groups in fundamentalist circles, independent circles, where I I would have had to go about this a lot differently just because I would have lost them in the first three minutes because they don't believe there's any bad preaching. (laughs) Well, for preaching, I got me where I'm at, amen? Yeah, and where you're at is not as good as you think it is, partner. You understand what I'm saying? And they don't want any criticism. They don't mind you criticizing John MacArthur. I mean, you can say anything you want to say about him. You can make up anything about Swindoll. Say whatever you want to say about, you know, anybody that's in the evangelical community. Just drag them up and down the highway. But the second you utter a critical word about our approach in independent circles, well, I just don't think we ought to be critical, brother. I think people's out there doing their best. Really? <laughs> I had a guy get mad at me. I went to Hiles, and we had a little dust up about a question. This was many years ago. We had an email going back and forth, and there was a group of us. And and he said, well, I just think you're being too critical. If it wasn't for Brother Hiles, I wouldn't be anywhere, and I wouldn't have anything. I'd still be a lost fornicator drunk out there in the world. And I'd rather back and say, you're absolutely right, and I love Brother Hiles. But there's, for every one of you saying that about Brother Hiles, there's another one saying the same thing about John MacArthur, which you hate. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have anything to do with those personalities. It has to do with what does the truth say, all right? And so my level of sarcastic delivery in a setting like this is just because I know what preachers go through, and I personally, I hate boredom, right? <laughs> and in a meeting like this, I like candor, I like openness, I like a little bit of 
you know, slice and cut and let's get in there and chop it all up, separate some things so that we can look at them clearly and then we'll put them back together in our own world. Right? That's what we're doing. Okay, so let's talk about this. So preaching is to speak the word and all that. And the power in preaching lies in its essence. When God's word is actually preached, fruit can be expected. Uh, God's word is effectual. John brought us, to quote him again, said the great appointed means of spreading the good tidings of salvation through Christ is preaching. Words spoken, whether to the individual or to the assembly, and this can nothing supersede. Isn't that something? Don't you love it when you find a quote like that that backs up what you dug out in the scripture? Right? So in other words, it's not like you you found this illustration and you want to try to make your sermon go with it because it's a cool story. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. But this this right here, you know, you hammer this thing out in the text and you see to speak the word is to preach the word, right? That it's a it's word spoken. And then you find a quote like that, it's really cool. So here's some reasons for giving preaching the place of prominence that it deserves. Number one, biblical preaching is to be preferred over wonderful demonstrations of the miraculous. Biblical preaching is to be preferred over wonderful demonstrations of the miraculous. To give some quick illustration, a quick illustration of my point, you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Abraham's bosom, all of that. Abraham, or the, the, the uh, Lazarus dies and is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is in hell. And the rich man asked Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them. Right? So send this guy back from the dead. Let him go tell my brothers. This miraculous thing will make a difference. And Jesus said, well, he has Moses and the prophets. Or Abraham said that, rather. And he, and he went on to say that uh, neither will they be persuaded. No one rose from the dead. How about Jesus on the road to Emmaus? He didn't create a flying monkey with a, you know, a typewriter. He didn't speak, he didn't do magic tricks. He expounded unto them the scripture, opened their understanding. And every guy in this room has gone to church on Sunday before said, Well, I sure wish God would do something today. What are you talking about? Well, he's already done more than we can ever get our minds around. We have to preach it and expound it. Well, here's a little ideology for you, right? God works in two ways. He works through miracles and he works through providence. But everybody wants the miracle. And in the, the amount of, 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 of uh, content dedicated to miracles in this book right here, very small. You understand that? And there's, a very, there's three, three time periods in the scripture where miracles are prolific. And in every case, it's a transitional moment in the history of Israel. Why? Because Jews require a sign. It was bringing Israel out of Egypt. Moses put his hand into his garment, takes out his leprous, puts it in, brings it out. It's, 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 it's pure, right? And throwing the rods down them, turning the serpents and all those wonders that they saw. That was for Israel. 
Same thing happened in the transition from the time of the kings to the times of the, of the prophets. Where Israel is going into apostasy and God has a prophetic message for Israel to get into their minds and into their heritage as a people. And what does he do? He sends Elijah with miracles and he sends Elisha with a double portion of miracles. And then where are they? After that, there's not a lot of miracles in the Bible. Then we get to the New Testament, it's the same thing. It's Jesus and the apostles. What is that? A time of transition from the Old Testament to the New. From Peter to Paul. From Jerusalem to Antioch. Right? From the synagogue to the church. The Bible says tongues are a what? Sign. And who requires a sign? Jews. Who was gathered at Pentecost from every nation under heaven? Jews. Tongues are for a sign. And by the way, it's not a magic show. It was to make the word of God hearable and understandable. So that's so miracles now. We all have this idea, even all of us, we have this idea that if God would do something miraculous, it'd help our ministry. I want to see God do something so big, everybody would have to say God did. That's what that we want we want the big building, we want the ministry to blow up. We want people to drive by and see the miracles. Why don't you just preach the Bible like a laborer, which the Bible describes us as laborers. Plow, plant, water, sow, reap, sow, reap for decades. That's how God's work gets done. But we think it's all about miracles, and there's not one thing in that Bible that would challenge us in a New Testament, Pauline context, right? Right, directly to the New Testament church. There's nothing in there that would tell us to pursue miracles and hope for miracles to authenticate our preaching and to justify our Christian commitments. But what do we have? We have providence. What is the providence of God? It's God's determination to see his purposes to fruition. And all these things that God has promised and purposed, he works now. The outward arrangement in the affairs of a man's life to bring about his purposes. That's providence. That's what God does. That's God seeing ahead. He's the master of all human events. The hand, the heart of the Lord is in the hand of the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. God is so providentially attuned that he is mindful of the excrescence of one's hair, right? <laughs> Our hairs are numbered. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, none of his promises will be thwarted. None of them. That's what Romans 8 is about. That's the greatest eternal security passage there is. That all of those that God justifies, him he justifies, he will also glorify. No misfires. Zero. So that's providence. What you and I have to deal with is slogging through the apparently unproductive, disappointing, difficult, depressing decades, depending upon the providence of God, right? That's why we have to be more immersed in the Scripture than ever so that we can preach it to people with patience, with compassion, with charity, so they'll understand. Because church, brethren, your church, they're going to struggle 
because they're not seeing the miracles. And you've got to teach them how to understand miracles without destroying their faith in a miracle-working God. See, that's important because I believe we believe in miracles. But what happens is we we get we we minimize what a miracle is. A miracle is not getting a check from the insurance company that you didn't know was coming. I tell you what, God always comes through. Amen. Right? You just locked up and got a check you didn't know was coming. Thank God for that. All every good gift and every perfect gift coming down from the Father of life, with whom there's no variables, no shadow of turning. But it's not a miracle that you've got a check in the mail. That's theologically reckless. A miracle is when the laws of nature are altered for the glory of God. That's a miracle. A peach tree's not a miracle. I had this lady in my church years ago. Everybody calls her Mima. Everything was a miracle to her. I just sat out there and I watched. I look at those peach trees. They just produce fruit every year. It's just such a miracle. No, it's not. It's nature. You know, the Facebook post with the new baby. What a, look at this miracle God has given us. It's not a miracle. The dumbest people in the world are having babies every day. That's one of our problems. There's no miraculous thing happening there. It's biology. It's nature. <laughs> now, I realize that God is breathing his life into a soul, and that's a miracle. Okay, I get that. But that's not what these people are talking about. These people are saying this. They don't even know what a soul is. See? So I'm saying that if you could choose between raising somebody from the dead on Sunday or preaching this, you'd get more done preaching this. Mm -hmm. A lot more. You don't believe that. And neither do I, but it's true. There's a little practical variance happening there, isn't there? Number two, our resurrected Lord, while walking this earth in the flesh, felt it important to expound the scriptures. I just made that point, so I want to elaborate. But he found it important to expound the scriptures. That would make me think that I should do it. If the one who could perform the miracles, if you do the wonders, did it, but expounded the scripture, maybe I need to do it. Number three, it is the increase of God's word that leads to the multiplication of, excuse me, of disciples. What does this phrase mean? The word of God increased. Right? Read that in Acts. The word of God increased. Simply means the word of God reached more people. Like the rising tide covers more land. And so the word of God didn't mean it that way, but roll tide. So <laughs> can't get, I can't get away from it. <laughs> the increase of God's word at least to the multiplication of disciples. All right? So when we preach his word, it, it has its effect. It does its work. It, it takes time sometimes. Okay. Number four, the powerful gift of Pentecost was in essence. The powerful gift of Pentecost was in essence the wherewithal to understand the preached word. Everybody gets all wigged out about the wind and the fire and the, you know, and all of that stuff and man, the tongues. What are tongues? Oh my goodness. The point was they understood what was preached. The biggest thing that happened in the passage is when the Bible says they were pricked in their hearts. And what did Peter just do? He just blasted them and said, this same Jesus whom you have crucified, right? And how did he make that point? 
by expounding passage after passage from the Old Testament that they already knew. So it was laid open for them and explained by Peter. And I've heard people say, there are no expository sermons in the Bible. You're dumb in a sack of hair. <laughs> at, uh, Pentecost, or Acts chapter 2 in the sermon at Pentecost was every bit expository. But that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow is this faulty idea of what exposition is. Everybody says it's preaching through a book of the Bible. That's one way to do it. That's not what expository means. Find me one dictionary on the earth. If you look up exposit, the, the definition is preaching through a book of the Bible. <laughs> so we'll talk about that tomorrow. All right. Let me look at the time here. Everybody good? Do I need a break? Cool. Okay. All right. Cool. We're going to eat at five, right? Yeah. And it's 4.05 right now, right? Four. Yeah, okay. Wow. You need to watch. <laughs> All right. Number five. Preaching the Bible is the only way, the only sure way, to make your efforts profitable to your listeners. Preaching the Bible is the only sure way to make your efforts profitable to the listeners. The Word of God tells us that the Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. You know... I don't know what it's like up here, but there's only so much condescension, direct rebuke that a grown man is going to take with his family sitting in the room. You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of guys who wor worry about how to reach men, and they're insulting men every time they go to church. I'm getting somewhere, so just stay with me. For instance, Mother's Day sermon. Oh, we thank God for the mamas. Thank the Lord for mama. I don't know where I'd be that mama. Boy, I tell you, they ought to be a hall of fame for mothers. Amen. I tell you what, mamas and mamas and mamas. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Mama trying to raise me better, but it's bleeding out of It's all mom. Father's Day. Well, I'll tell you what, we need some men again in this country, amen. You men need to go home and lead your families. Get your families to church. You can get a hold of stuff at home. Boy, we don't have any men anymore. What's happened to the men? Right? Men get sick of that after a while. They may not say it. They just stop coming. They just go back to fishing on Sunday. I'm not saying you don't preach against a man's sin. I'm saying you can't insult his manhood week after week after week after week while pumping up the women. Women are awesome. Men are bad. Women are awesome. Men are bad. Amen. So, what's my point? If you preach and teach the Word of God, somebody needs to be rebuked, and you're just preaching and teaching, explaining and applying the Word of God, they're not going to get offended at that. They're not snowflakes. But they're only going to tolerate so much direct insult because you want to impress the women. Or you're afraid of. Amen, amen, amen. And most men are afraid of women. You know it, and I know it. <laughs> I had somebody visit my church recently, and he's a, a retired pastor in our area, and, and they made some kind of... Somebody said something about something I said about my wife in the sermon. And, and, and this visiting preacher said, oh, I bet he went back said, now I did, like I was going to go back and clean it up. And, uh, and my church member said to him, said, I don't know. He, <laughs> he gets after almost every sermon. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> I just give her the business. She can take a joke, right? Well, that guy wasn't true blessed. I said, look here, bro. I mean, you know, I don't know about you, 
But I'm not afraid of women. I mean, there's not a woman in here I can't whip. I can whip every woman in this room. Why would I be afraid of them? Now think about it. I love them. I'm glad they're there. I respect them. I want them to be happy. Why are men afraid of women? Can somebody tell me that? I'm way off track right now. But they're afraid of them. Most men are afraid of their wives. Most men, yes, it's true. Most men are afraid of their daughters. That's why you see these commercials of the teenage girl coming downstairs in a mini skirt. This little helpless dad sitting there watching her go out. I don't know what to do, but are you sure you're going to wear that? You're, listen, you're not wearing anything I don't like if you live in my house. Nothing. And I don't care if you like. If you don't like it, guess what? You won't even go. How's that? We just keep that little attitude at the house. I don't like that punk out there anyway. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? What, what happened to those kind of men? Where are they at? We've been convinced that we should tone it down. Now, I'm totally off track, but I felt like I want to go there. Every commercial. you got some scared dude in the car, and the wife is getting him through the snowstorm. Right? Driving. She's going to get him through the storm. She's strong. And every sitcom out there is some dumb, stupid guy who wastes the family's money, cares about nothing but football, he's dumber than a shoehorn, and the wife is holding the family together. Because feminists are right in this you're, you're exactly right. Feminism has destroyed this country. Now, now we're going to move on. But let me tell you why I'm on this tirade and I stay on it. Because men are sensing this garbage. Why do you think you see gatherings in every community in this country now with these biker-looking dudes? They got tattoos all over them, big biceps. They ride motorcycles and drive jeeps, and they all get together away from their wives, right? And they they, they smoke some meat and shoot some pool and watch some football and hang out because that's what men do. They actually appreciate the camaraderie of some kind of manliness. All right. And then they go to church on Sunday, and you've got some button-down guy that's obviously afraid of the women. And everything going on in the church is, is woman first. It's feminized. There's no, there's no conviction in the pulpit. There's no, no aggression of any kind. There's nobody taking a stand for anything. Now, y'all heard me at the beginning of the day. I'm not for abusing people and, and tirades on, on secondary issues. Y'all right? right? But there are things to stand for and to be firm about and to appreciate men and to be strong and appreciate their their hard work and the, and the grit and the grind and the struggle to make a living and give them a place to worship where they believe they're loved and appreciated, respected, and accepted. So, to do that, you've got to be able to preach against sin. You've got to be able to help them see the difference between a faithful man and a man that's checked out, because we all know that's a problem too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you have to do it without insulting their manhood all the time. You know, I said, women and men are different. Raising a boy and a girl is different. I think raising a son is a lot more uh, uh, difficult. And, and, and a lot of people say it the opposite way. Easy for me to raise my daughters. You're just not going anywhere. That's easy. <laughs> you're staying right here. I'll decide when you're able to date, who you date, where you go when you date, and we'll just see how that goes. But my a son, he's the one you got to teach to stand up to the bully. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you tell your son, I think what you do, son, you hit him right in his face and keep hitting him. He might win, but you break enough stuff on his face, you won't ever have to do it again. And everybody who sees it won't want to be a part of it. And that's the kind of thing my dad told me when I was a kid. My dad was a drill sergeant. I'm talking about the D.I. hat, one-hand <laughs> push-ups. 
Hannibal. All right. That's what he does. Nowadays, what happens? So what happens if I tell my grandson? Zard puts you around, you bust him in his face, and he kid cuts it. Put some steel in. What am I going to do then? What am I going to do when five kids stomp him in a field position in a bathroom somewhere, like we're seeing all over the internet, and I just told him to be a man? Do y'all agree that that's tough? You do, and it's not easy to teach that. So bringing up men in this world is a little harder than it looks. And so I'm just saying to you, this is I'm off track because I'm trying to feel to you and I'm caring about this. When they come into our churches, they need a preacher that's a man. And I don't think you show that manhood by being an idiot, right? Like like the illustration I used earlier about, you know, ripping all Democrats without giving them a chance to, to learn, right? But they, they'll if you're a man, they'll sense it. And I don't think every man has to walk and talk and hold his mouth the same way. You know what I mean? I've got a, I've got a buddy who his favorite thing is to say, I'm kind of indoorsy. You know, people say, I'm an outdoorsy. I don't get outside. Well, to him, all that means is he's going to do something he doesn't want to do. Sweat, <laughs> you know, get stung by a wasp, <laughs> break a bone, no thanks. But this guy's not effeminate. He just has a different way about it. Pastors are bookish. We are. We lose our toughness sometimes. That's not what manhood is about. Manhood is about integrity and conviction and work ethic and standing up for what's right and not being afraid. You know. So anyway, that's a challenge to you. And I think preaching the Word of God is what enables us to bring conviction without insulting the men of the family. Um, one more illustration about that. Have you noticed how often a woman, if she gets her feelings hurt, in a group of girls, they don't mind crying. They'll just cry and say, well, that really hurt my feelings. Dudes can't do that. You ever think about that when you're watching a football game? You ever think about it when it's millions of people are watching this high-profile college football game? Like happened Saturday. You got a young kid who's a sophomore in college, throws the ball to the other team twice. A potentially national championship team with a massive, rabid fan base who's expecting a national championship sees their quarterback give the game to the other team in their house. And he's got to go sleep on that, right? you got a coach ripping their lungs out. You know what I'm saying? All of that. And that guy's just got to take it. It's different being a man. And so a man needs some place to come where his, his own weaknesses we have them we have our dark places and dark moments and difficult times and depressions and suffering and struggle we have it and we need somebody who will address it from the pulpit with the eternal words of god with conviction and masculinity and not shame them constantly because they don't act like their wife that's it that's my soliloquy on that i'm going to move on Preaching the Bible is the only way to make your efforts profitable to your listeners. That was the whole point. Um, you guys don't need me to balance this, right? You know, I have two daughters, a daughter-in-law, who is, they are fantastic blessings to my life. I love my wife. She's the best friend I've ever had. And we are in this thing together, which is why I'm able to joke about a personal moment. You know what I mean? Come on, Lisa, that sounded stupid. You know, that's because we're, we're friends. We have a great time together. My, my mother's a great woman. My pastor's wife is great. My mother-in-law was a great woman. 
but we're living in a culture that's favoring the feminization of men. Does that make sense to y'all? Do y'all agree with that? Okay. So that's what I'm addressing here. I'm not pushing for some. It's definitely a problem. Okay. And I just want to make sure that we're on the same. When woman of the year is a man. There you go. That, and that's the, most, that's the most extreme demonstration of what we're talking about. i tell you how bad it is. Lost people are making my point now. I don't know if y'all are seeing that on the podcast, but there's all this stuff out there where men are saying, hey, it's not wrong to be a man, okay? And if you don't like that, go get somebody else. If you're going to date me, this is what's going to be expected out of you. Lost people are saying these things, right? So, yeah, exactly. So, uh, I, I just want to make, make clear that I don't want to waste y'all's time with a rant. I just felt like I am a preacher, too. I'm not just a lecturer. And so the preacher comes out of me. Yes, sir. You know, if, if what you said wasn't true, then the world wouldn't hate Jordan Peterson. Huh? Couldn't have been. That, those are the best illustrations that we could give right there. Yeah. Fantastic. He's not a believer. He's not a preacher. He's... He's a leftist from Canada. And he's a Canadian. Yes. And and he's a bookish guy. Yeah. Right. He's not out there swinging an axe. He's not cutting. He's not cutting timber. Yeah. He's not cutting timber like like uh, James Wiley. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He's he's a dude. Yeah. Excellent example, brother Paul. I don't think it hurts to have a little bit of manly stuff around the church too. Well, of course not. Flowers. No, no, of course not. And. no, that's it. If I was going to bring that conversation around and balance it, I would say, I would say that it's gone so far that some men associate anything elevated, eloquent, fashionable with femininity, and that's silly. There's nothing effeminate about a grand symphony. Nothing. You may not dig it. I prefer Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs over Mozart. But buddy, don't you kid yourself, Mozart is fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. And and haute cuisine. Now I'm not talking about the catered wedding food that's not as good as it looks. I'm talking about real Michelin star restaurants mm-hmm. where world-class chefs are cooking staggering food. That's a work of art. It's not as good as biscuits and gravy every day, but it's an amazing thing to see, right? So that and and so I would say a man needs to be a, a Renaissance version of all of that, right? He needs to have his bookish side, and he needs to be able to get his hands dirty. And and uh, and did you have something to add? Did I leave you? No, no. It's okay. just that I'm just concurring that. This is all an issue that we're all on the same page about. Yes. Because when you have full-grown men coming to you and saying, well, I'll see if my wife says it's okay, and then we'll discuss it. That's when I begin to realize, okay, this is an actual issue. It's a problem. It's a problem. And I can't stand it. And listen, my wife, when when I took this church where I'm at now, it's a small church in a little county, and I just believed it was what I needed to do. And so they do what they can for me, but it isn't much. And so my wife started a business. She was just going to clean some houses, and it turned into something. Now she has employees and, you know, commercial accounts, and so she's doing very well. So, and that's relative. I mean, we're not rich, but whew, the, the, double, the double income, no kids, the dink. Yeah. Bring your grandkids over. <laughs> 
I'll feed them ice cream till they puke. But, but it's, it's a lot cheaper than having kids. And anyway, so uh, my wife, for instance, it's just, I'm just giving you personal feedback here for whatever's worth to you. Um, she makes good money. She just manages the, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know how much money we've got. I don't know. I know we're saving some money because we've got a little two-acre piece of land. We actually like it. You know, and they're hard to find, right? Surrounded by pasture and Bankhead National Forest is a mile from the house. We got a little single wide. We moved in. We were going to build a house. Everything went through the roof. Now it's a gazillion dollars a square foot, right? Well, we're trying to work a solution out. And uh, you might cut this off the tape or whatever. But my son sells mobile homes. And in Alabama, that's that's a big deal. That's a lot of Yes. So he's got a great job and does well with that. So we have an opportunity to get a massive amount of square foot and a really good deal on a, on a mobile home, right? And so we need to save money, which I don't really care to do. Um, right? I feel like if, if one thing, if this costs more than this, the one that costs more must be better. That's all the investigation I want to do. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. So I, I'm terrible, you know? So I'm not sacrificing my manhood. I'm delegating. I'll call Lisa and say, look, I need, I, I, there's, there's a coat here, a top coat that looks great, fits me just what I'm looking for, but I can spend, you know, three or four hundred dollars, maybe five. And I just want to know, do we have money or do I need to wait? That's not me getting permission. That, that's me finding out if where we're at, and I'm not going to hurt our family. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? But, if I want it, I would just call and say, hey, I just bought a five hundred dollar job. Fix and pay for this jacket, but make sure there's some money in the account. Okay? And so, anyway, you guys don't need me to balance all this stuff. You know exactly where we're coming from. I just want to make sure you know me and that my sarcasm doesn't get misunderstood. I, I want women to be treated right with respect, and I think men should be gentlemen, but they ought to be men. And, and I had an experience recently, and then I'm going to move on, where I was in one of those situations with some guys like I described earlier, the motorcycle club guys and all great guys. You know, um, I, I would probably be one of those guys. If I did, I like old-fashioned. I like the old men's stores, haberdasheries, you know what I mean? And, and the custom clothes, I don't have a lot. Of, I, I like that stuff. But that style fits me better than, you know, a, a long beard and, uh, you know, a gray, a gray watch and a, one of those rubber rings everybody wears, what he calls it. You know what I'm talking about? That, you know the look I'm talking about, right? And, um, you know, tattoos of... You know Santa Claus and the Island of Misfit toys in my arm or whatever. That look, it looks masculine and manly, but my style would be more like you know, some guy from 1955 with his shoes shined and you know what I mean, that kind of deal. Anyway, the style I, doesn't make the man; it's his character. Yes, yes, and and there's different ways to go with that. Some guys are athletic. They, every time you see them, they got their golf clothes on. That's cool. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is. I was with these guys, and we had a conversation. All these guys are out of church, but they're meaning, it was a meaningful conversation. And I sensed that they needed something. I sensed that they're going to church, and it's off-putting to them. And it hit me. It's because it's feminized. And preachers are, they're, they're, you know? And, uh, and so I sensed a similar thing here in these conversations. So... I just wanted to drill down a little bit there because I feel like God's working in my life as a pastor. 
And uh, my, my plan is to go home and to start a, a quarterly men's fellowship and use it as an outreach thing. Make sure you come and make sure you try to bring somebody who doesn't go to our church. And let's get them in here. And uh, like the first one I think we're going to do is uh, we're going to have a big Hot Wheel race. You know what I mean? And we come, we got everybody to bring a Hot Wheel and we're going to race them, eat the hot dogs or you know what I mean? Something like that. And then just talk to them about being men. If we make good connections, somebody will come, some will be helped, some will be encouraged. And, and, uh, and that's what I got in mind for that. So anyway, good stuff. Let's move quickly. The words of God are preached. Number seven, when the words of God are preached, it prevents the negative influence of bad company. When the words of God are preached, it prevents the negative influence of bad company. So on the occasion that people come to hear us preach, they should leave with the feeling that they have spent time with God because of our communication, our communicating of the truth. And, um, you know, at times we're too reckless. I know that I am. You can tell by my personality. I can be a little reckless with my sermonic ad-libs and philosophical meandering. And um, people don't need to hear what I have to say about the Bible. They need to hear what the Bible has to say. All right? And some preachers may not have that temptation. Um, in other words, they might it might be a struggle for them to have something to say. So they have to work harder at just saying what the Bible says and explaining it. I have a salesman personality. I was raised by a salesman and, and a drill sergeant, a coach. You know, So I, I have an outgoing, talkative, let me tell you my better story kind of personality, right? So that can be a, that can help you preach it. It can also be a hindrance. I, I don't like those Sundays when I go home and I'll reflect and I think there was too much of me in the sermon, right? But I have an opposite problem lately, I think. I've gotten to the point where I hate that so bad and I enjoy study and research so much that I'm preaching again to use this well-worn, well-worn word already, my preaching has become too bookish, all right? And, and, and it's not, it's entertaining to me. And a lot of times I'm preaching to myself what would keep my attention, but it's not to keep that. They don't care. They don't get it. They don't see the importance of it. And so I've got to try to get back into a better place where I'm preaching the same truth, but with more of the personality communicating, saying it in market language. I don't mean replacing theological words. I mean talking to the people I'm preaching to in a way. You know, I always liked William F. Buckley a thousand times more than Rush Limbaugh. All right? But Rush Limbaugh had a much bigger following than William F. Buckley because most people would rather hear Rush Limbaugh's comedic sarcasm than William F. Buckley say, if we've learned anything from the hour, we should remobilize the axioms of conservatism. Right? What? Did, what? You know? So... And George Will versus, you know, whatever. All right. So, number eight, there is something in God's word for people of every status, stature, and station. There's something in God's word for people of every status, stature, and station. It has been said, I think it was um, Matthew Henry, that the word of God is shallow enough to for a lamb to weigh, but deep enough to drown an elephant, Right? something there for everybody and I'm going to tell you something some of the best preaching you'll ever do is going back and studying very well-known passages as if you'd never heard them before and building them from the labor 
rather than the impression that you already have. You know, like John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Or, you know, John chapter 3, things like that. And it'd be amazing what it'll do for you. And some of the some of the greatest, simple, yet profound expositions of God's word will emerge from that discipline. All right. Number nine, biblical preaching is far superior. It's far superior to personal experience and human sensation. Uh, it's far superior to that. And um, we have a tendency. Another one of my big mistakes is, is I will spend too much time in the introduction because I do like to run my mouth. I do like to tell stories. I do like to, and if it's going well, I'll go too far. And I'm 20 minutes in, and I'm still talking about, you know, when I fell in the creek last week. You know what I mean? So it's ridiculous. And I have to discipline myself to uh, get up there and say it and move on. Um, number 10, biblical preaching is the primary way to stand athwart the inertia of modern apostasy with faithful authority. Biblical preaching is the primary way to stand athwart the inertia of modern apostasy with faithful authority. Um, That's good. Praise the Lord. Let's let, let me let me read you a little bit of something that you might get a little bit from here, and then we're going to talk about um, why preaching's falling on hard times, and we should be ready for dinner at that point. And tomorrow it's more technical. All right, we need real technical tomorrow. Um, about the pioneering preacher John Alderson from West Virginia in 1738 to 1821. Cathcart said he was mighty in the scriptures, a good preacher, a wise counselor, and an untiring worker. It was said that Eli Ball of Virginia in 1786 to 1853, who labored extensively in numerous positions and states, would be, quote, remembered by Virginia Baptists as one of their soundest, best, and most useful proclaimers of our gospel. Concerning William T. Brantley, Sr. of South Carolina, late 1700s to 1845, we are told that, quote, Christ was everything in his heart and in his sermons. The convert of Jesse Mercer, Jesse Mercer was the founder of Mercer Seminary of Georgia that trained a gazillion southern preachers. The convert of Jesse Mercer, Joshua S. Calloway of Georgia, was, quote, very clear and scriptural in his preaching. The Wisconsin pastor, Frederick Leonard Chapel, died in 1900, was, quote, a clear and able expounder of the word of God in the pulpit. Joseph F. Elder, 1839, the pastor of the Madison Avenue Baptist Church in 1869 preached sermons, gave addresses, and wrote essays that gave, quote, evidence of patient and thorough research, leading to, quote, a conscientious presentation of the whole truth. John Wesley Osborne, Sr. of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, 
He traveled many miles in the Midwest without salary, baptizing over 3,000 converts and establishing numerous permanent churches. And he was, quote, doctrinal in preaching, using only brief notes, and swayed his audiences with the eloquence of truth. Matthew Hillsman of Tennessee, 1814 to 1892, wrote of the Tennessee's notable frontier preachers who received, quote, a bag of flour and a dressed hog as his first pay for ministry efforts, was in preaching, quote, sound in doctrine, clear in exposition, and powerful in appeal, and entirely free from sensationalism. Get that? Just a little note here. How many times have you seen a movie about the pioneering pioneers and the Wild West and all of that? And every preacher is a wild-eyed, snake-handling, hard-drinking, womanizing, crazy person. What about all these guys like this who were sound and clear and faithful and preached for almost nothing and was completely free of sensationalism? Well, where's that guy in the movie? Yeah, that's exactly right. Where's Isaac McCoy, who went with his family to the West, the first missionaries to the American Indian, to a near friendless people, and buried 11 of 14 children on the frontier? Where's that guy? Pastoring such notable churches as First Baptist Newport, Rhode Island, and First Baptist New York City, Benjamin Foster was simply described as, quote, an able preacher, and the Lord blessed his ministry to many. One cannot hope for a better, better record. Think of that an able preacher, and the Lord blessed his ministry to many. Would you like to have that on your tombstone? On your grave, <laughs> grave market? Thomas Rand, 19th century preacher, spent his ministry days in Louisiana where, quote, he devoted his life to teaching and preaching and did much to build up the Baptist cause in the Opelousas region. He was a ripe scholar and a fine preacher. William Porter, 19th century preacher who held his post as the pastor of the West Union Baptist Church of Oregon, the first Baptist church west of the Rockies, was doctrinal and practical, extempore and pathetic. Not pathetic like we use it, like, well, that's pathetic, but he preached with pathos, swaying his hearers with a wonderful power. Henry Talbert, 19th century uh, preacher active in Alabama, Kentucky, Missouri. He connected with Marion College there in Alabama with William and Jewel College and served the Confederacy, 7th and 41st Alabama regiments as a captain and colonel, respectively. More importantly, during his ministry, he baptized over 2,000 persons. Cathcart said of his preaching, quote, he is polished in manners and address. Can I stop here? You guys won't care about this, but you, you could say the same thing about Maine, maybe. But one of the things that irritates me as a Southerner is the way Southern culture is now associated with nothing but ignorance and radical redneck nothingness, right? When our heritage is in, includes education and eloquence and sophistication and gentlemanly behavior, not always well-schooled education, but people who believed in learning and improving themselves and men being gentlemen, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and it irritates me that we have given up who we are to, you know, our heroes here now in the right wing now is, you know, everybody from Hank Jr. to Kid Rock and you know what I mean? Those are our great conservative heroes. But I'm not offended by those guys. 
But can we get somebody who can walk and chew gum at the same time? <laughs> Alabama, there's a man named Jabez Lamar Monroe Curry. He was fourth in line to the presidency of the Confederacy. He is an Ivy League educated lawyer back in those days. All right? And he was, ready for this, a Texas Ranger in the Mexican War and a Baptist preacher. Jebez, Lamar, Monroe, Curry. Can you imagine having that kind of balance as a man, right? Ivy League educated lawyer, eloquent speaker, leader in politics and education in the Confederacy, contributed greatly to the rise of culture in the South. And a Texas Ranger who had run you through with a sword. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Man, that's an unusual balance of man that is. So back to the point. It says he is polished in manners and address. He is devoted to study and spends a large portion of his time in his well-selected, you read this word? Curse word. Library. He preaches from copious notes, but the greater portion of his discourse is extemporal. His preaching is sound and practical. Now, I don't like to talk about extemporaneous preaching because today that means I didn't study. <laughs> But real extemporaneous preaching means you're so well prepared that you can say these things you need to say without notes and stay on point. That's a discipline, right, on its own. Not one that I use much, but it's a discipline. His preaching is sound and practical, his logic clear and convincing. His sermons exhibit research and careful preparation and always command the attention of his hearers from the beginning to the end. S.W. Paul Jumby, Pittsburgh and Boston, 1827 and on, was an able preacher whom the Savior has honored and blessed, unquote. Robert Hall was in England, 1764 to 1831. Remember that name, Robert Hall, quote, never read his sermons and very seldom wrote them entire. He studied them with the greatest care, though his use of paper was very limited. That was Robert Hall. Robert Hall is considered by many to be the greatest preacher to ever utilize the English language. Wow. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania enjoyed the prosperous ministry of Louis P. Hornberger, 1841. He was born, who was said to be, quote, earnest and practical, sound in doctrine, clear in his statements of gospel truths, and uncompromising in their advocacy. He is a fluent, ready, and graceful speaker. Equally good in extemporizing or reading. A lot of our kind of outline utilization would be considered extemporizing, right? Because we do have an outline. We did prepare our thoughts, but we're not reading a manuscript. So that's just a practical difference. The famous English Baptist, Andrew Fuller, was described as a preacher by Cathcart in these words. His style was clear as a sunbeam. With little effort at ornament, his arrangements or his arguments were commonly as forceful as the blow of a sledgehammer when delivered with all the power of a strong and practiced hand. He was one of the few Englishmen that knew how to use the Scottish custom of expository preaching. In his mode of applying the word of God to men, Mr. Fuller attained great distinction. To compete, or to complete rather, this brief glance of our abundant heritage as Baptist preachers, I refer you to what has been said about two of my personal favorites. All right. J.R. Graves, 1820 to 1893, and I.M. Haldeman, 1845 to 1933. J.R. Graves was 
the often battled Baptist preacher who defended the distinctive principles of the Baptists like no other. He was published papers and he fought for Baptist principles. He's the one that wrote old landmarkism. What is it? All right. So a man named um, um, Pendleton uh, wrote a, pu a publication called Old Landmarks Reset, if I remember correctly. And that was talking about Baptist principles. What makes a Baptist church? Well, it's individual. It's it's uh, faith followed by baptism, which is a public statement of a believer. Believer baptism, right? So you have a saved, baptized church membership. You don't have unconverted people as members of a local assembly. And that's what constitutes a church. And it is that which has the authority to baptize and extend the Lord's table. Now, I don't know how you can miss that. That's as clear as a bell in the scripture. But we've gotten so loose in our practices, we'd rather have numbers and we'd rather get along with our Protestant friends than do what is right. And that, that's what they were saying in those days. And then Jared Grace backed it up. And it had great effect in America in shoring up the actual distinctives of the Baptist people. Now, this was said about his preaching. Throughout Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Louisiana, he preached, lectured, held meetings, rallied the churches, gave unity to their aims, and expounded and illustrated, as few like him could do, the doctrines of grace through faith in the Redeemer against salvation through ordinances, or the church, or ought under heavens but Jesus only. The Lord seemed to endow him with extraordinary power and showers of blessings followed his fervid ministrations. Now do you see tucked in there the language that there's something more to defending Baptist principles than just wanting to be right about something or, or, or win an argument or defend the house. In Gray's understanding, if you were not practicing believers' baptism with the right order in the church and that institution being the only one with the authority to ordain, and if you're not properly ordained, then you don't get to baptize and, and perform weddings and ordain other preachers because you're not properly ex a proper extension of the local church. See, that's Baptist principles, all right? But what he's seeing there is that this is the biblical answer to the corruptions of Rome. Right, which is a faulty ecclesiasticism. And, and there's the baptism of infants into a state church and all of its sacramental extension, which is an offense to the true gospel, justification through by nothing but faith in Christ alone. So can you see how he's pulling for our principles to represent, I mean our principles to be represented in our practice, no practical variance, right? That's what he's calling for. So what does he brand it as? Divisive. See? Love him. And the point is, he's remembered as being divisive when all of the preachers in his era, if you go read the material, you go read the old stuff, read the letters in the archives, read what they said about him in his day, they lauded him as a preacher's preacher. Right? Upon the date of his 40th year as their pastor, of the First Baptist Church of New York City, these words were produced in a biographical commemoration of the peerless Isaac Massey Haldeman in 1923. We're getting somewhere. I, what I'm trying to do right now is encourage you to be a preacher, right? And to love what you do 
and love where God has put you and see that there's so many different ways that it can be done as long as the key things are being emphasized, right? Haldeman, quote, Haldeman is much more than a preacher. He is a thoughtful teacher, a careful exponent of the truth. His sermons are saturated with the spirit of the scriptures. He speaks with the authority of profound belief, supported by the devotion and prayer which attend his words as those of one who dwells much in the secret place of the Most High. As a teacher and interpreter of the truth, as it is in Jesus Christ, he has led multitudes of earnest souls into a deeper knowledge of the treasures of riches which are in. He is not only the greatest living exponent of the foundational doctrine of the premillennial and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he is also the foremost teacher of the Word of God and his purity and coherence and the most widely known exegete of the world today. To him, the Bible is the most perfectly attested and verified book in the universe of God. It is the Alpha and Omega of truth. Dr. Haldeman is also an author whose writings have been read in many lands and the total output of whose works has reached to millions of copies. He resorts to no cheap or artificial methods of rhetoric in order to secure attention, but pours forth the faith and the love of his heart into the message which he broadcasts through the medium of his many publications. Now, there's much more said there that you don't want to nor need to hear, I guess. Haldeman was in New York City. My son and I were trying to find the, 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 this church. This is when I first started researching Baptist history many years ago. My son was about 13 years old, so we're in Manhattan, and we went to the uh, Manhattan um, Historical Institute, or the Historical Archives or Museum. I, I forget what you call it, New York. I forget the name of the place. Right there on you know, Central Park, and big stately building. We go in there and we look up. I'm trying to find the first Baptist church ever in New York City. Well, it just so happens that it's the First Baptist Church, and that's not always the case, right? A lot of times there'll be an old church there that's gone now, and, and the First Baptist Church is not really the First Baptist Church, right? Well, so I got the address, and there's, there's you know, sometimes there'll be a First Baptist Church that might be the first, what we used to would have been called the First Colored Baptist Church, right? But it's a black congregation, so it's the First Baptist Church of a certain kind, right? But it's not the first one chronologically. And so I'm just trying to work through all that stuff. And so we're walking along 79th Street, and we come to Broadway, all right, which you know swings up there on the upper west side of New York City. And I'm standing with my son on the corner, and I said, church ought to be around here somewhere. And, and he just points it, is that it? And I didn't expect it to be this you know, overwhelming, this massive building right there in the corner of 79th Street in Broadway, and the church is set where it's the entrance is facing the corner, right? So it's you're looking right across the intersection, right into the front of the church. And in New York City, you're used to all these weird Unitarian churches and Catholic churches and just crazy stuff. And on this building, right across the top, etched into the stone, it said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm -hmm. Awesome thing to see. So Haldeman became someone that I loved a great deal. And we were trying to find his grave. And most old Baptists, you know, were poor. Or, if not poor, just, you know, average people. 
scraping by and making do, so you'll find them in some backwater cemetery somewhere, a lot of times in a pasture, you know, if you can find them at all. And, uh, but I am Holloman was buried, we found his grave in the uh, massive cemetery in the Bronx, right at the end of the, of the subway, it just ends right there, get off, cross the street, it's right there, and, it's a, and he had an above ground mausoleum, a big one, you know, so he, inside, he's buried and entombed inside, it's got him there, his wife there, and his son, who was a, uh, a doctor, died before him, and his name, I think, was Harry. And it said on Holloman's grave there, gone to be with the Lord and Harry. And that was a very moving thing. And so I'm saying all that to say this. Holloman was a giant New York City. And I've done this. You go look at the headline, the the um, advertisements in the newspaper, New York Times from those days, and the titles of the sermons would be advertised. And you could see a Baptist preacher, the title of his sermon, and you're gonna, you think, that, that seems strange, right? Get the idea that he's already drinking the liberal Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? He's already got his foot in the, on the wrong side of the thing. But then you read Hall, one after another, after another, after another, just hitting the, the issue of the truth right square between the eyes, even with the sermon titles, you know? So you've got this giant there in Manhattan during the rise of liberalism, just right up the way there. On Riverside was Harry Emerson Fosdick, his ideological nemesis, who preached the famous sermon, shall the fundamentalist win? Right down the way in Midtown is the Calvary Baptist Church with the famous John Roach Stratton, who defended the scripture against infidels and debates there in uh, the Radio City Music Hall. And I mean, big stuff happening in those days. Here's Holloman. You know, most people, a lot of people haven't heard of Holloman. And, and a lot of that is because he was a dispensationalist. And you know, fundamentalists don't like dispensationalism because it messes up their out-of-context sermons. And uh, so you've got, uh, you know, you've got... <laughs> And they have to look a little hard at some of Larkin's charts, and it takes, you know, three minutes of thinking, so they don't want to fool with that. And, you know, so they dismiss it because they found one little thing in there that didn't, you know, so now I don't have to fool with this because I found one thing I disagree with. So you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Machine stuff. Haldeman, it is believed, was the guy who had great influence on Larkin. And so Haldeman had painted on the wall of the First Baptist Church his own version of a dispensational chart. It used to be there. I've seen it before they moved it, but they took it down because they said it was scary to some of the kids. <laughs> you know, it's one of those deals where I'm visiting. I'm a visitor, you know, to see this stuff, and I'm just like this. You know, it's all, all, you know how you do it. You want to get into it with people, but you can't. It, it's just not profitable. You know? Yeah, they don't want to scare the kids. So anyway, you don't think that dude dressed up like a woman might be scarier? Okay. <laughs> So y'all get y'all get the landscape there, right? Well, check this out, this footnote. All right, this is a letter that was in this uh, commemorative publication for Haldeman's anniversary, and it's a letter from J. Frank Norris. All right, and Norris says, "quote I was a post-millennialist until I read his book Haldeman, the premillennial and imminent coming of Christ." From that time until now, I have been a constant reader of Dr. Haldeman's writings, sermons, and addresses. 
though the influence of his ministry, through the influence of his ministry, my entire course has changed. I thank the Father of mercies for this mighty preacher whose pulpit is New York City and whose back pew is the Pacific Coast. That's amazing, isn't it? So it's Holloman's writings that made a premillennialist out of Norris. It was Norris's rabble-rousing premillennialism that influenced men like John Rice, Jack Howells, Lester Roloff, and a long list of other Texas Baptists in that day back in the 50s, before anybody knew who they were really in a big way, that were having those premillennialism conferences, right? And really, really sounding off for premillennial doctrine. All that goes back through Norris and back through this 19th century preacher who is just plowing in New York City, preaching the word, writing the truth, writing the truth, and preaching the word. It's amazing, isn't it? And that, that's what I want to encourage you to do this week. Any way that I can, I just want to encourage you to, um, to be faithful to preach the best sermons that you can preach. And if you do that, I guarantee you, God's going to use you. No doubt. Now, we're, let's wrap this up with... Um, all right, 10 minutes, all right? Let's wrap it up with this. First of all, you have any questions? Anybody? Any, uh, yeah. So this might seem a little bit off topic, but you kind of mentioned it when you were no. talking with that guy. Um, do you, what do you think about, what should the preacher go in the pulpit with? Manuscript, the bare bones outline, or nothing? Whatever works for him. I think if you've got the time, if you can be disciplined enough, I, I stay too long in the research mode because I just want to get more and more and more and more and more. And I want to preach the very best stuff that I can get my head around, right? And I'm not always using other people's stuff directly. I almost never do. I just want to understand the text in a way that will enable me to preach it the best way that I can. So I, I think that, that, and I'm going to get to this later, but the manuscript, writing a sermonic manuscript is a great exercise for helping you say everything you want to say in a very specific way saying it in good detail with good form and it helps you see just how long it's going to take you to preach what you prepared to say and you can decide how long you want to preach you know i agree man they go to ball games and sit there for four hours yes but the difference is the ball game is fun to watch your preaching is really hard to listen to so that would be the difference and i know you say they love ball born they love truth but we can't get to the truth past your lame preaching. So, <laughs> I'm just, be, just think about what we're saying. Let's have a little self-awareness and, and not act like our sermon delivery ought to be as fantastic as, as watching Tom Brady let it rip in Gillette Stadium. I mean, come on now. Let's get a little self-awareness. Right? The same preacher will knock everybody down to go get to the fried chicken. Just as carnal, sweating chicken grease 24 hours a day, right? The size of a deep freeze. But boy, he's spiritual because he preaches for an hour and 15 minutes. And if you don't like it, it's because you don't love God. Nope, hate your sermon. Are y'all saying, I'm being a smart enough. All right, so to go back to, if we can get, uh, look, very few, very few people can preach an hour and stand up to it. Very few people can pull that off. You've got to be really, really good, and you've got to have a special group. 
and nobody coming off the streets is set up for an hour-long sermon. They are not. So, well, they watch an hour, they watch two hour-long movies. Yeah, there's this amazing thing called a pause button. You can't pause the sermon and go to the bathroom, answer a call. So it's difficult to expect people to sit there that long. Now, I'm a guy that thinks you ought to be able to preach long, all right? You understand, I'm arguing both sides of this. But somewhere between A.B. Henderson's 20-minute sermon and our over-preached, hour-long sermon, there's probably a much better spot. When you hit 30 minutes in this generation, you better have a buzzer going off in your head. I'm talking about like the, like a seatbelt alarm. I mean, just something that won't stop in your brain. When you hit 30 minutes, it is time to get that sucker landed. And if you if you put in everything you got in the conclusion, you're landing a plane in 40 minutes. That's longer than any sitcom in the world. So, well, people ought to, I know and I ought to have hair, but I don't. And when you fight against the inevitable, that doesn't make you a man of God of conviction. It makes you impractical. Wouldn't it be better if we got some good done in 30 to 40 minutes or 45 tops than if we made ourselves feel spiritual bashing people for an hour and 15 minutes? You know what's wrong that? You lose them. You know when they check out on you. How many times have you been preaching a sermon and something in your head said, I need to quit. I got them now. I got everybody in here where I want them. Get it landed. But we don't. We like it. We're intoxicated by it. Boy, they're liking this. I'm preaching now. Might as well do it 20 more minutes. And then you quit after you lost them. You know when I have good good altar calls? Watch this. Y'all don't like this, but you know, there's going to be a lot of these things before we're done. The best responses to an invitation I ever have is when A, it's got to be, if the auditorium is warm, I never have a good altar call. Never. Because everybody's half asleep. The old, sure the old women like it warm, because they don't get to hear what you say anyway. They don't, there's not, there's not eight out of ten elderly women, or there's not two out of ten elderly women who are there to hear what you've got to say. They want you to say what they want said, and then they want to get to the house. And when they get warm, they're going to sleep on you. And the young people are fighting their kids, trying to keep them from tearing the song books apart. And the guy that's got a heavy-duty job, who's under stress, he's thinking about his job. He's trying to hear the sermon. He's trying, but he's under stress. And then if you got a guy in there who everything's going pretty well for him, he's glad to be there. He loves you. He loves the church. Praise the Lord. But man, we're going to have a good time today. Cowboys are playing today. Right? So what were you, you had something else. No. Nope. Oh, okay. So that's all your personal business now. I, I'm just telling you what I think. You know whatever you want to do with it. But I know we, it's common for independent Baptist preachers to bash the people that want you to shorten the sermons. Why do you think every time somebody has a guest speaker, what's the first thing you think of? Hope this guy didn't preach too long. Hope this guy will wrap this up. I'm talking about as a pastor, though. You bring in a guest speaker. He's your guest speaker. You brought him in. What are you hoping he doesn't do first? Preach too long. Now, maybe some of you guys aren't that way. Maybe you're one of those guys that said, you preach as long as you want to. We didn't come here to get out. Amen. I agree. Sounds great. Half your church is Right? Because they're making an effort just to be there. So, I, I know to us, another potluck, you know, another potluck, another version of, you know, the lighthouse, 
You know, let's get somebody to let, hey, I know what. Let's sing um, um, It Is Well With My Soul, because we've never sung that in church before. But let's sing it for the eight millionth time. How about somebody sing Ship Ahoy? <laughs> and let's go on and on and on and on and on and on. And, <clears throat> brother, these people out here don't go to church. Do you understand? We do this stuff because it's our way of fellowshipping and it's cheap and we're just rejoicing in what we've got. They don't get it. So when they come in on a Sunday morning and you got visitors in there, you got to think about the timing factor. you got to think about the fact that what is fun to us is a little cheesy to them. Okay. I've already wrecked this session, so I'm going to do one more thing. <laughs> you understand that these men we were talking about earlier Great input about from Brother Paul about Jordan Peterson. Great input from Brother Chris about uh, you know the, the woman of the years a man. All right, is that the crazy world we're living in? You know, people actually like conservatives. They actually appreciate it. I don't think there's ever been a time, a window of opportunity like we've got right now for sane, non-crazy conservatism to get some more people in the boat politically and ecclesiastically, right? When they come in and hear a man preach and hear a man tell a joke, you know, about his wife, if your wife can take it, if she can't take it, then obviously you wouldn't do that. But you know what I'm talking about. If you have a little fun with the women in the church and talk about women and tell a mother-in-law joke, yeah. yeah. Well, I just want to add something to what you were saying real quick. I don't yeah. take all the time. Please. My wife works at a public school, and uh, there's something to be said about this. This, this window of opportunity. And I think God is doing something. I mean, there, there's people that she works with that have said for years they, they live in together with boyfriends, these women that work at the school. Yep. I'm never going to get married. I was married before. Or this and that was going on. Or I've had five boyfriends. I got, you know, all these baby daddy, all this stuff that we hear about. Yeah. In the last year, a handful of these women have come to my wife and they said, no, I'm, I'm going to stop just living with my boyfriend. I'm getting married. They don't even know why they're doing it. Yeah. But there's something going on with this cultural thing. I, I people that are even lost people are getting freaked out by how far this is going. I agree with you. And there's like a yep. window here. We've got to hit that window. I agree. And here's here is where I'm going. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Now, how many of y'all understand that we independent Baptists, our we like the more radical the better sometimes, right? We like to double down. Right? You know. You don't want, you don't go to movies. I don't even have a TV, Jack. We don't have a TV. We don't need a TV in our house. I'll, I'll throw away my TV six times. You know, I mean, it just, and, and, and you just kick it further and further and further down the road. Now watch this. People love conservatism. They expect a preacher to be against sin. They're not surprised when a preacher expects ladies to be ladies and men to be men. They're not expected when, they, when you encourage them to get control of your home. That doesn't offend them or bother them. But the second our conservatism turns into weird, they are out. And you know what we say? Hell, they just don't like holiness, baloney. They see too many weird people in their Amish clothes molesting kids. Mm, you understand? When it seems weird... It's weird. It took me 40 years to figure out that wacko isn't holy. Mm, you understand? Yeah, that's 
I'm, yes, I'm 100% for modesty, a distinction uh, between the sexes. I'm 100% for all that stuff, right? But I'm telling you, there's a point. You know, the Duggars shouldn't necessarily be our example of the Christian family. I, I don't know. I'm not saying they're all bad. Some of them are wonderful people. But that's where our culture's at. They don't. Those wackos in Hollywood don't like us. They want to find the weirdest, most extreme version of us. Yeah. And they couldn't be happier that the scene has been recently riddled with perversity. They, they couldn't be happier that some of it is going up in smoke. Yeah. And that's why it's important for us to be right, but not weird. You even have to be careful how you say things, don't you? Wise as serpent gentle as dove, right? That's the way that goes. And Jesus said, I have some things to say to you that you're not ready for yet. You know, all right, I'll give you one more example. I'm done. All right, so on that deal, if we say, there's not a man in here who would be offended if I told you I am training my daughters, and my daughters are grown now, but I'm training my daughters to be wise and mothers. And by the way, my kids have a secular music career where they were the, at the top of the bluegrass world award-winning recording artist, singing on the Grand Ole Opry 30 times. I mean, way out there, all right? I mean, not Taylor Swift, but I don't know that they couldn't have been something similar or if they kept going. As soon as they get old enough to start getting married, have kids, every one of them wanted off the road. Why? Because of how they were raised, all right? Now, I'm not setting my kids up as an example. I'm just telling you that um, th those, things are, those things are obviously important. And when people come in from the world, they get that. So if I tell you, I raise my daughters to be wives and mothers, that's what we train them to do. Well, you don't hear anything weird from that. But if you tell somebody who's completely lost, yeah, our daughters didn't go to college, we trained them to be wives and mothers. They immediately picture cults, right? They immediately picture, you know, extreme Mormon cults and weird stuff. So we know what we mean by that. I train my daughters to be wives and mothers. They also sang on the Grand Ole Opry, which ain't exactly spiritual. Do you see what I'm saying? So, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. You can see that anywhere you want to see it. You can like it. You can say that it's not a good idea. There were times when it was scary, right? But the point is, I could say something and it be received one way, and it be totally different from what I really mean. That's what I'm saying. So it's okay to preach and teach biblical truth, explain it in its context, apply it with conservatism. But as soon as it starts getting weird, you're gonna, we're going to lose a lot of this culture for a good reason, because it's a little scary. You're saying it's a little weird. And I wouldn't say this year 40 years ago. I wouldn't say this 20 years ago. But I'm seeing it over and over and over again. There's something disturbing about a preacher and his group, his family, his church that finds spirituality validated in the most extreme possible measures. Jesus was called for sinners. He was accused of being a drunkard in a wine bed. How would you accuse Jesus of that unless he associated in a friendly sense? with people in situations that would allow someone to accuse him of being a drunkard in a library. Do y'all see what I'm saying? 
We have taken our separation and turned it into something excessive and radicalized. That's that, and it becomes dangerous at that point because it becomes carnal and deadly and counterintuitive to everything that we're trying to do. So, you know, it's possible for a woman to be modest and then stop, which is the best option. I mean, if you can spot her from the moon because she looks so weird, <laughs> could be a problem, right? When a preacher's suit literally is flame retardant, <laughs> and I'm not, this is not class stuff here, you can get inexpensive stuff, you can find things on sale, and you're in the North Country in Maine, so it may not matter the same way it may matter in other places, right? That's a fact. I, I wore some khaki pants to a ball game when I first started pastoring this church here in rural Alabama, and one of the girls from my church said, why are you so dressed up? I said, dressed up? This is my ball game clothes. I'm dressed down. You know what I mean? All right, none of that. Hey, let's don't be weird. Let's be godly and biblical. Separated, absolutely. Standards, all for it. But let's not be weird and wacko. Lord, we pray you'll bless these men. I thank you for them. I hope they've been encouraged been a little bit more freewheeling than I intended. I, don't, I hope their time is not wasted. And Lord, I pray you'll encourage them about what we've discussed. And may we be strong men, faithful men. May we love and encourage the men in our communities. Please help us with that. Lord, we feel lost at times as well, knowing how to connect with them, how to encourage them, how to help them. And so Lord, we pray for your touch on the things that we're trying to do for you. We pray that the preaching would do everything that it needs to do that it would encourage people from, from, from the nursery to, the, to those wonderful golden years. And Lord, may we, may we preach sermons that would encourage the older saints that are, that are wrapping things up and looking forward to heaven and be encouraged that they lived it right. May we also help the families, the young couples who are struggling to do better things, to succeed at business or raise families and make ends meet. And may we also encourage the young people, give them real, biblical, meaty, thoughtful answers to everything. May they be taught to believe and worship you according to the scripture and not worship our policies, but to know the scripture and the principles and to live them. Lord, we love you. We pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll have mercy upon us as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, man. Really do.